0: Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rodner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies and the states. We're taping on Thursday, March 5th at 1030 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Kimberly Leonard of The Washington Examiner. Hi. Emery Hudeman of Kaiser Health News. Hey there. And Tammy Luby of CNN. Hello. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So a whole lot of news to talk about this week. Um, but let's start with presidential politics. So very much has happened since last week. Joe Biden won a landslide in South Carolina. Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar dropped out and endorsed him, as did earlier dropout Beto O'Rourke. Biden went on to win most of the Super Tuesday states, prompting Mike Bloomberg to drop out on Wednesday, leaving the race effectively Sanders versus Biden. Um Anybody with any hot theories on what this means for the health debate and how much of a role health policy, still Democratic voters' top issue, according to all the exit polls, played in all of this?
1: Well, interestingly, in the exit polls, it did show, unlike some of the prior states, that while health care was the top issue, but remember also on that – on the exit polls, they did not ask about immigration. They did not ask about the economy. It was only four things. So I think – uh, you know that there's of so, those four of those four healthcare was the most important um but interestingly in the exit polls in these states even in California the uh, number of people who were for single payer which they probably don't fully understand what that means but the number of people the, the share of people for single payer was less than slightly less than in the uh, previous
0: states in the earlier so, states. in the earlier states like we're, we've been talking about it for you know, ad ad nauseum for almost a year.
1: Right. But I mean, also, you know, as we know from polls and other speaking to people that they don't fully understand the debate. And so, you know, I guess there'll be and and Biden hasn't really laid out his plan in great detail. So.
0: Although he did um, last summer, he just doesn't talk about it very much.
1: Right. But even last summer, I mean, we know he has a public option, but there's still a lot of questions.
0: Yeah. I mean, is is there an extent that this is now going to become a proxy war for Medicare for all versus build on the ACA if it's down to Bernie and Biden? I think it always was. It was just, you know, you've got the progressives
1: on one side of Warren and Sanders and you've got the moderates on the other side of Biden, Klobuchar and Buttigieg. And now it's just fewer people on each side. But yeah, it's still pretty clearly the public option versus Medicare for all. And the public and voters don't fully understand either plan. That's for sure. And we're, you're going to say something. In
2: some ways, it seems like we were kind of fated to come to this point. I mean, there's been such a clear dichotomy between the moderate perspective of, you know, stabilize the ACA, focus on a public option, whereas Bernie Sanders is the poster child for Medicare for all. I don't think he that wrote the is, damn bill. <laughs> so I've heard. I don't think that this is necessarily um, I don't think that the split has come, that Biden has suddenly um, risen from the ashes in some way because of his support for the public option versus Medicare for all, per se. But that is what we're going to talk about, I think, several times, at least in the midst of the rest of the primary, because it's kind of what the Democratic Party is fighting over right now.
0: And there's like a bunch more debates, right? Mm. Oh, my goodness.
2: Let's no, see. there's actually, well, there's oh. two more. Two more in the primaries. There's, yeah. yeah,
1: there's one that's been scheduled for Sunday night, which I'm sure everyone will tune into mm-hmm. on March 15th.
2: <laughs> I know I'll be watching. Yeah. I know I will
0: be too, <laughs> <laughs> and I watch all of them because that's my job. <laughs> One of the things we saw, particularly in you know the early states where everybody was you know micromanaging everything, was that the second choices of a lot of voters didn't necessarily fall into these lanes of you know the moderate versus the the progressive people. You know who were said they were for Elizabeth Warren, second choice might have been Biden, or people who said they were for Bernie uh, Buttigieg's second choice might have been Sanders, um, and yet. I was—I I admit to being one of those people who was stunned that when the moderates sort of dropped down en masse and endorsed Biden, Biden got all of their votes. So, I mean, it, to to the extent we had changed narrative and say it's not really all about ideology, it sure looked like it on Tuesday.
2: It's true. But we're in the point now where um, a lot of the debate within the party is uh, who can actually beat Trump. And when it comes down to that, it's less about policy and more about the person.
1: Exactly. It's not the issues. I mean, if you also look at the exit polls, the issues... Are getting fewer, you know, getting fewer. It's not say. an issue driven campaign. Exactly, it's right. not the, the issues are not the top. It's priority. It's a Donald Trump I'm, driven campaign. Yes, they they want the top uh, point is to whether they can
0: whether the candidate can be Trump. All right. Well, we will, we will talk about Donald Trump momentarily because we're going to talk about COVID-19, the coronavirus. Uh, this week, we started to see a lot more cases here in the U.S., particularly in the Pacific Northwest, and a lot more panic buying. Hand sanitizer is becoming a prized possession, uh, even though really washing your hands is actually better. We talked about this a little bit last week, but I wanted to revisit. This administration has been premised on getting its base to distrust both science and the idea of competence and nonpartisanship in government. And of course, at this point, we are dependent on trusting both. So how is the Trump administration doing at kind of turning this ship in the middle of the storm? Uh, are, Are workers really scared of making the president angry so they don't want to say things that it might be worse than he's saying?
2: I mean, we're certainly seeing stories coming out that within the administration, people are prioritizing not wanting to move ahead of the president, especially because his anger is so potent and so visible. If you're watching his Twitter feed, Um Politico had a story this week that talked in particular about the pressure um on Azar because... A lot of people say that he didn't step up fast enough in the midst of this coronavirus response. And because he didn't step up fast enough, people are examining why he might not have stepped up so fast. And some people say it might be because he was trying to keep everyone from getting out ahead of something that President Trump didn't want to hear his administration officials saying.
0: Yeah, I mean, there, there was talk, I guess, earlier in the week that, that some of the science officials are being muzzled, or at least they're having to, to – um, you know, vet their appearances through the vice president's office, since the vice president is now in charge of coronavirus response. Um, that's you've Tammy, you've been around for previous uh, uh, outbreaks like this. I mean, I don't recall seeing that sort of thing. That, that Tony Fauci, who's been you know sort of the lead government spokesman on infectious disease, because he's the head of the National Institute for Infectious Disease at NIH, but you know he's been in he's been there since the reagan administration so this has never been a partisan thing right i mean you can definitely
1: see that uh, the vice president's office is taking charge here and i mean you see that in the news conferences that are being held and you know and there's gentle corrections of the president that's going on i mean you know we saw even was it yesterday i guess that uh, the president was talking about the mortality rate saying that he thinks it's a lot less than you know what it really is and there've been comments that no you know this is what the the mortality rate actually is now but you know one thing that's also interesting is is there's also management of the message among the drug makers, too. And so, you know, the on Monday, Trump was meeting with a lot of the drug makers. And, you know, he was saying, can, so can this be in a few months? You know, oh, can you do it faster than you? And, you know, and all of that. And the well, drug he, makers were sort of saying, well, this is going to take time. And I think it's, you know, interesting. I went to a briefing yesterday with several of the drug makers. And they were saying, you know, we're only going to start getting to clinical trials, maybe by the end of the year. So we're not going to be seeing a vaccine this you know this year
0: and the president seemed to have the idea that you could have a vaccine that that one one thing would would be both a vaccine and a treatment by august yes so but yeah so
1: i think that there's a lot of education of both the public and the administration.
0: Well, one thing the federal government can do uh, in a hurry is uh, appropriate money. Uh, Congress has come to a quick agreement on funding for the crisis. The House has passed. And as we speak, the Senate is considering and likely to pass a bipartisan bicameral bill to divide $8.3 billion between the NIH, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the FDA, the State Department, and other emergency funds to help locate and develop treatment for patients and prevent more transmissions. One of the big issues surrounding this seems to be uh, that identifying people with the disease is made harder by the structure of our health care system, where people have growing deductibles that mostly haven't been met by early March and little or no sick leave. um, Or if they're in the gig economy, they have no health insurance at all in many cases. How big an obstacle might this turn into in the U.S. compared to some of the countries like in Europe that are struggling with pretty, you know, the same kinds of outbreaks that we are.
1: You know, I mean, this has been a main concern, as we saw from the Miami Herald story of the person who got a $3,000 bill. He actually has a short-term health plan. It was one of uh, last
0: week's extra credits.
1: Right. And so, but that has actually spurred a lot of concern among people. And, you know, we've been getting, you know, emails and contacts from people at CNN writing in saying, oh, my God, I can't afford this. And and there is a lot of mis. Conception and miscommunication about this. So, I mean, you know, thirty percent of people are in high deductible plans, and they don't realize that when they go to get tested, yes, the coronavirus, uh, the corona test itself is free, but you still have to pay the emergency room bill. You're still going to have to pay the, you know, the doctors, and if you end up getting, uh, you know, other kinds of tests done, it's not going to be cheap. And Unless, I mean, depending, I mean, that's the whole yeah. thing. We don't know if you have ins- good insurance, if you have a low deductible, if you've already met everything then it may not
0: cost you much. It really just depends. But there are people who have been um, quarantined in hospitals and then yeah. are getting hospi- big hospital bills.
3: Yeah, I mean, something like this, We, you know, we've been talking about all these issues for a couple of years now. Um, you know, the way that Yes, you have a lot of people with employer plans, but they don't necessarily cover everything that you need. You end up paying a lot out of pocket. You end up having surprise medical bills. Congress was supposed to kind of get a handle on this. They didn't. Uh, we've written they're a lot about it. they on it. They, they say they're going to work on it by May. Um, but, you know, something like this, a, an infection that, you know, we're trying to get a handle on really does expose a lot of holes in our safety net and even among people who have health insurance.
0: And, and from, well along these lines from the Department of Irony, uh, Vice President Pence announced on Wednesday that coronavirus tests will be designated as an essential health benefit and covered by Medicare and Medicaid and insurance plans except only insurance plans that are compliant with the Affordable Care Act because those are the only ones that are required to cover the essential health benefits um, and this of course from the administration that has worked overtime to make sure that non-compliant plans, short-term plans, like other the types like the man of in plans, Miami right, are much more widely available so I'm sort of – I'm not even sure what to think about the idea that now they're coming to the idea of, oh, maybe we should mandate some of these benefits.
2: You know, in a time of crisis, you see really how your system actually works and, um, and how your officials see the system working. And I think that this has been very revealing in a lot of ways about how this administration looks at health Somebody
0: tweeted there are no libertarians in an epidemic. <laughs>
1: Right. And I mean, and of course, the other area that we're seeing problems is in hospitals, emergency rooms. I mean, last year, you know, it was very hard to get a bed in New York City because of the flu and people were in the emergency room. And that was just the room. seasonal flu. Right. This the seasonal flu and people were in the emergency room for days and all of the, you know, this isn't just a regular hospital room with, you know, two people in bed or even a private room. This is like a specific isolation room and there are only so many of them. And so now, and the flu season is bad this year again. So I think as there are more and more people who are going to be diagnosed, we're going to really see problems in the hospital systems as
0: well. And we should also point out that, that even though Pence said they're making this an essential health benefit, there's a rule. You can't just do that. There's a rulemaking process that you have mm. to go through. So even, I mean, it is, as someone else has pointed out, it is likely that these will be covered anyway if you have comprehensive health insurance. It's a diagnostic. And there are times when public health steps in and pays for these things um, that you can always, I mean, that's like immunizations. It is. It is a common good. But it's, you know, the structure of our health system faced with sort of a public health emergency is a big deal. And I feel like we didn't have sort of this level. We were not in sort of this place the last time we had sort of this level of public health emergency, which I guess was 2009 with the H1N1. Um, it's We will sort of have to see how this plays out. All right. Well, moving on, the Supreme Court Wednesday heard oral arguments in a case that could start the process of unraveling abortion rights in the United States. At issue is a Louisiana law requiring abortion doctors have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles of the clinic. Uh, under the argument that if a woman suffers complications, the doctor should be able to accompany her to the hospital and treat her there. Now, the court struck down a nearly identical Texas law only for years years ago. It feels like so much more than that. Uh, and the only thing that's changed since then is the makeup of the court, which now seemingly has five anti-abortion justices. I was there and watched the arguments. And honestly, I can't predict how this case is going to come out. Kimberly, you were there, too. What did, did you glean anything from the oral arguments?
3: So, yes, I was there, too. Um, you know, obviously, we don't know how the justices are going to rule, but all eyes were on Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch. Um, Gorsuch was not asking questions, but 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 Kavanaugh was asking whether the law was still burdensome in Louisiana, or whether it was generally burdensome in any state. So what he was saying, he was sort of presenting these hypotheticals where he was saying, okay, but if you're in this state and you require doctors to have admitting privileges to local hospitals, and they're easily able to obtain them. Which they that, have
0: not been in Louisiana.
3: Correct. And definitely we're not in Texas. But his he was sort of asking, is, is it still overly burdensome? Does it still get in the way of a woman's access to abortion? So that was kind of the question that he was sort of pressing um, on and then, you know, we ha- we heard a lot from some of the liberal justices who were saying that they, you know, who sort of indicated they thought the law was unnecessary. Um, they noted that reported complications around abortions are rare, and they also picked on the specific um, language of the law that requires um, the admitting privileges to be thirty miles away that from, the from the abortion clinic. clinic. Right. And they were sort of saying, okay, but if you're if you take the abortion pill, then you go home to complete the abortion. So why does it need to be near the abortion clinic? A woman would go to the hospital that's closest to where she lives. So that was sort of what we were hearing from the justices on Wednesday.
0: Yeah, it was interesting because, you know, in the Texas case, the the law actually went into effect in Texas and immediately half the clinics in the state closed. I mean, so it was pretty clear. And there were one of the reasons they the court struck it down was because in some parts of the state, you would have to drive 500 miles to, to get an abortion. Apparently in Louisiana, in some cases, you'd have to drive 300 miles, not that much closer, um, particularly if you're trying to do it in one day. And now other laws require you to stay over. So it does – there's a point at which I I was interested also in Kavanaugh saying, could you see a situation in which this would not be an undue burden, which is the current standard for striking down an abortion restriction? Um, And I thought the the lawyer sort of parlayed it very well by saying, that's not the case here. (laughs) This is the case we're talking about.
2: It sounds like he's looking for an opportunity or at least um, uh, is – Open to the opportunity of a broader abortion um, ruling than just you know this applies to Louisiana clinics. It sounds like they're talking about this could apply to the entire nation, right?
0: Well, I don't know. I thought he was looking for an opportunity to apply a narrower one, but you're right. If in Louisiana it is an undue burden, I mean they may want to say we're gonna that we'll do this case by case and Mm -hmm. sort of invite the other 48 states, several of which already have these laws, to to say well how is it in your state? I mean, that that is a possibility. I think that's probably a possibility for where they'll come out anyway. I mean, the clinics made, you know, a, a fairly strong case that this is exactly like the case that, you know, was there four years ago. Um, but it's hard. It's still hard to see who the fifth vote is. I mean, it would, it would have to be the chief justice. And he was, along with Kavanaugh, asking about, you know, possibilities of, of trying to sort of split it a little bit more you know, oh, I see. peel yeah. the onion a little bit more narrowly but it was really hard to tell. We should point out that it's not just the admitting privileges that are at issue in this case the state of Louisiana is also arguing that abortion clinics themselves should not be allowed to sue in this case because they have a conflict of interest with the patients whose health and safety is allegedly protected by the law. Now the court has been allowing abortion doctors uh, to sue on behalf of their patients going back to at least the 1980s uh, apparently or at least this was discussed yesterday eight different cases where abortion doctors have been allowed to sue on behalf of their patients. This would be a huge overturn if they were to suddenly say that, no, only patients can sue, right?
3: Right, right. I mean, that's something that Justice Breyer was really honing in on and saying, look, we've done this eight other times before. He said, I looked. I found it was eight other times before. So what happens in all those different cases? And we saw Justice Alito really pressing the questions over standing and saying, you know, but... OK, do you and your patients have the same goals here or are you in conflict? So that was kind of – we really saw him pressing, I'd say, I'd say, more than any of the other justices Yeah, well,
0: he's been pretty – he's yeah. been the – I've been to, I think, all of the abortion arguments since Alito has been on the bench. And he's been sort of the kind of the voice of the anti-abortion faction. Um, I mean Scalia, too, to some extent, but particularly since, uh, since Justice Scalia died, um, it's, it's really been Alito. He's been the one who's been sort of out front. Um, so that didn't really surprise me all that much. But it's, it would be a very interesting uh, situation if, uh, if they were to actually say that, no, we're going to change all these rules of standing. And apparently the rules – this particular rule goes back not so much to an abortion case but to a case about beer, which, which – was mentioned several times, which is that um, a beer seller was allowed to sue over uh, tr- was trying to restrict beer to uh, underage males, <laughs> and, and I think there was I guess one I guess the underage male who'd sued turned twenty one and was no longer underage, so he could no longer be part of the case, and they allowed it to go forward with just the beer seller. So that's that is I believe the the main case in uh, in this whole standing. What issue. What a precedent! <laughs> All right, and and finally I think before we leave we should at least mention you know when you go to. Supreme Court arguments on big contentious issues. There's always people on both sides out front, you know, and they have rallies and, you know, and they have competing rallies, which is always hard because you can't hear. And Chuck Schumer, the minority leader of the Senate, was there for the abortion rights side and basically threatened Gorsuch uh, and and Kavanaugh and is now, uh, and Justice Roberts himself, the Chief Justice, actually issued a rare statement um, last night um, calling out. Uh, Senator Schumer for um, for threatening justices. And I'm wondering are we, you know, is there a line here that's being crossed?
2: I think that a lot of Democrats in particular in Congress feel that the line was crossed back when Justice Kavanaugh was um, was being confirmed. Um, there were a lot of people who reacted to his comments um, during his confirmation hearing about, about the Clintons and the Democrats. And they interpreted that as, hey, open season on me in the political sphere because I've decided to join as well. And if you talk to Democrats, that's kind of how they look at him now. So I it sounds like Senator Schumer got a little carried away, but it's very revealing of how they see uh those particular members of the court.
0: Yeah, it was funny. In the courtroom itself it was all very substantive and not I mean, you know, they're always very Polite to each other and and polite to the lawyers. But it's, you know, you get outside and it's like, okay back to politics. Um, Well, while we are talking about the Supreme Court, uh, the court announced earlier this week it would hear that case out of Texas challenging the Affordable Care Act. For those who are new to our audience or have forgotten, it's the case arguing that because Congress reduced the penalty for not having health insurance to zero as part of its 2017 tax bill, the entire law is now unconstitutional. Uh, district court agreed with that argument. And more recently, an appeals court panel sent the case back to the district court to see if any of the law can remain, given that now the the individual mandate is unconstitutional. So the Democratic attorneys general, who are now defending the law because the Trump administration's Department of Justice is not defending the law, uh, asked the Supreme Court to take up the case immediately, meaning a decision by this June. The court said, yeah, sorry, not doing that. But now they've accepted it for next term, where the arguments could could and likely will happen before the general election in November, because it's an early case for next term. What might that mean politically? We would have arguments, but not a decision. Oh, we'll have to see where coronavirus is at yeah, the time. Yeah, true. <laughs> because as you,
1: we talked about earlier, this is an opportunity for the Democrats to say, hey, people need health insurance and you know, you're going to take it away. You're going to take it away from pre-existing conditions, you know, people with pre-existing conditions. So it's, it's going to be—I mean, it was always going to be very contentious in the election. And we saw that in 2018, the threats of the Trump administration taking away protections for people with pre-existing conditions won the Democrats the House. So it's
3: going to be very hot. Politically— this is something Democrats can use to against Trump. Um, He's very vulnerable on this. Um, There is no alternative plan if the Affordable Care Act were to be struck down in court. Um, And if you talk to Democratic leaders in Congress, they would much rather see Democrats who are running for the presidency fight to defend the Affordable Care Act than fight over whether to do Medicare for all or a public option. So um, this is something that Democrats can run on. um, And it's something that we know that people are worried about. They're worried about healthcare costs. They're worried about if they're sick, they're going to be charged more or turned down by health insurance companies. And the Affordable Care Act is, I think, at its, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, is at um, its highest level of popularity yet at uh, fi- 55% favorability. So, um, you know, this puts the, the Affordable Care Act front and center ahead of the election. It
0: strikes me that in some ways, this is kind of the best case scenario for the Democrats because they wanted the court to take it up because they wanted to get rid of the uncertainty. The health industry then has no idea what's going to happen. It would cause chaos. Um, And that was what they argued when they said, please take it up right now here the you know, have the arguments this spring Decide it by June. Um, But there's unlike the abortion case where we have really no idea what's going to happen. There is at least a perception that probably Chief Justice Roberts would throw this case out. He has Defended the Affordable Care Act twice before on cases that were a lot stronger than this one, um, so one would would have expected that it, that if it come up fast. They would have come up and then it probably would have been upheld. But now we'll have the arguments and the Trump Justice Department arguing that the whole law should be struck down and there's no replacement. And we won't have a decision when people go to vote.
3: And the Trump administration knows how unpopular this is because they actually asked the Supreme Court not even to take it up ahead of, you know, the election and to wait until the lower courts were done litigating. So it definitely um, makes them vulnerable heading into 2020 election.
0: For the first time, we'll be all very interested to see exactly when these oral arguments get scheduled, whether they come in that – what they call the first sitting in October um, or whether they push even the arguments until after the election.
2: I don't think it qualifies as an October surprise if we know about it now though. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> but we'll see. Yeah. All right.
0: Well, finally this week, the U.S. House last week passed a major bill to ban most vaping flavors to deter teen use of vaping products. And almost literally nobody noticed. Uh, I would point out this is the second time the House has passed a major bill that they had been working on for a while that got completely overshadowed by other news in December. The House passed the drug price bill in the middle of mm-hmm. impeachment. Now everything is overshadowed by the coronavirus coverage. But vaping is still a big issue. Emory, what's in this bill?
2: So what we see is uh, basically the ban on flavor uh, flavored e-cigarettes that was called for under the Trump administration and not brought to fruition. Um, so the House decided that they were going to ban flavored e-cigs and flavored tobacco. And this is a big deal because they included menthol. And menthol cigarettes are particularly popular among African-American smokers. And so what we heard is, yes, Democrats in the House passed this bill, but not without a little bit of infighting about it. A lot of Democrats, or at least a, a portion of Democrats, said... Uh, This is going to cause over-policing among the African-American community. Um, And nevertheless, the House came out with this bill that goes farther than what the Trump administration had put out previously – of course, the question is, will the Senate take it up?
0: That was going to be my next question. <laughs> will the Senate take it up? Is the Senate going to take up anything?
2: I mean, there's a reason that we keep talking about the graveyard in the Senate, right? Nothing is really moving in the Senate. We're seeing some things moving in the House. We've had some big health care bills move out of the House, as you pointed out. And I mean, if a tree falls in the forest, you know what I mean? <laughs> so,
0: But think it's something that has... But you know, it, like surprise bills,
3: it has bipartisan bicameral agreement, and the president wants it. I was surprised when I went to talk
2: to Republicans about this, and how many of them said, "Yes, we need this ban." Over on the Senate side, it's true. And I mean, a lot of the arguments against it were really like, "This doesn't go far enough." You didn't include, you know, you didn't include marijuana. You didn't include, um, I think, single use cartridges or something. There were like a few other things. Actually, one of them that I, I found think particularly it's the interesting. cartridges
0: that they sell in vaping stores. Oh, that was I it. Think yes. it's the non single use ones.
2: Right, my mistake. But um, another thing that was excluded, interestingly, that Democrats pointed out was uh, cigars. Cigars are excluded from this. And their argument was, why, if we're having a a ban on this that's trying to target a public health issue, why are we excluding things that would be part of this? Let's just ban smoking.
3: Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting time to do it because there were a few weeks where we were kind of having regular calls with the CDC about the vaping question, but now all the regular calls are about coronavirus. So the attention is really turned there. We have such a short attention span.
1: (laughs) Well, the coronavirus is really, I mean, now you have also the Trump administration, you know, playing to the drug makers. And, you know, what is this going to mean now for drug price reductions? Because in the... Congressional spending bill, one of the holdups initially was affordability issues. And, you know, again, the drug executives are saying, don't put any price controls on us. If you want a vaccine quickly, you know, don't put price controls. And so now the drug makers are back to having some leverage over drug prices in general.
0: It's always all about trade-offs. All right. Well, that is at least as much news as we could get to this week. Uh, Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry. If you miss it, we will post a link to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Kimberly, why don't you go first this week?
3: Sure. um Sure. I have a story by Caitlin Newman at U.S. News and World Report. The title is Alcohol is Increasingly a Woman's Health Issue. I've really been uh, following this topic because I've noticed alcohol deaths are on the rise. They're on the rise as the story details, um, among women as well. Um, but when it comes to enacting policies on alcohol, you get a lot more backlash. So even though the opioid epidemic is kind of front and center with Congress's agenda and what lawmakers are talking about, we're not hearing as much about alcohol, which we also talked about last week a little bit.
2: <laughs> Emory. Uh, my story is uh, coverage of an announcement from the Department of Justice last week um, as part of their ongoing probe into the financial relationships between drug makers and uh, the patient assistance charities who help their patients. Um, the, J- the Justice Department announced that they had struck a deal with uh, Senefi. And Senofi, um had been accused of using charities to help pay Medicare beneficiaries co-pays, which would be considered illegal kickbacks, the Department of Justice argued. Uh, and so Senefi agreed to pay $11.9 million to settle this. Um, Part of a huge, huge effort by the Justice Department right now that I think needs more attention. So I recommend everyone read this story uh, from Reuters is the one I'm looking at. Good. Tammy.
1: Hi, I have a story about the coronavirus and about hospital preparedness from ProPublica from Marshall Allen, Caroline Chen, J. David McSwain and Lexi Churchill, throwing a a lot of their top reporters on it. And again, it talks about, you know, I had mentioned just now about hospital beds and emergency rooms. But another problem is, of course, once you actually get into the hospital, it's infection control, which is a major issue for hospitals, period. And this is the story is you know looks at that and looks at some of the
0: failings in hospital infection control in light of the coronavirus. Basically, it's all terrifying. Um, I have an insurance story. It's from the Connecticut Mirror by Jenna Carlesso. It's called "I'm Relying on Prayer." Complaints pile up against healthcare sharing ministries as state mounted defense. And if it sounds familiar, that's because we have done similar stories before. But it bears repeating: health sharing ministries are not insurance. In this case. The patient was steered to a ministry by an insurance agent, thought it was insurance, developed a serious shoulder problem, had to have surgery, and his $280,000 claim was denied for being a pre existing condition. Uh, Quote, I wanted something affordable. I didn't think I would need it that long, says the patient in the story. Uh, Yes, the health system is a mess. It's too expensive, but if you're going to buy insurance, you should at least make sure it's insurance. So on that cautionary note, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. At Luby, L-U-H-B-Y. I'm at Emory, D.C. At
3: Leonard, K.L.
0: We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.